Hi, today we have Meredith Solomon, who is the manager for outreach and public services for Countway Library. So Meredith, welcome. Thanks for having me. And would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I am actually a medical librarian by trade. I received my MLS back in 2006. I've been working in health science libraries even before I went to graduate school. I've been in the field of health science libraries since 1998, um, doing a lot of traditional library work, working in small community hospitals, large metropolitan hospitals, and a couple of different academic institutions. I've been here at Countway about this month, I think, makes six and a half years. My work here is less of a traditional librarian and more of, uh, I guess, a community builder for Countway Library. Okay, great. And so what does a medical librarian do? Like a typical, you know, before you were doing this community building, what were you, what would have been your day-to-day tasks? Sure. Um, So here at Countway, a lot of our research and instruction librarians are involved directly in curriculum-based instruction during certain parts of the curriculum. They definitely get the first-year medical students ready to begin their clinical experiences, so teaching them about the databases, the types of databases, the different kinds of databases, and how to really become a better critical thinker when they're in a patient interaction and have a question. We also work on a lot of uh, research endeavors. So there are lots of different types of reviews, scoping reviews, systematic reviews, or just overall general lit reviews that our research and instruction librarians can help with. We tend to know how to use the databases much better than any average individual. So our goal is to teach our users how to better use them, but also to save them time and effort so they can continue doing what they're supposed to be doing work-wise, whether it's being a better clinician or being the best student you can be. Some of our medical librarians actually work on research data management. So they help labs managing all of the data that all of the experiments come up with, whether it's lab notebooks or electronic or in print, digital repository information. It runs the gamut, at least these days. It's definitely expanded as was slightly different when it was back in the in the 90s. So we've definitely uh, grown in our knowledge, skills, and abilities. So, you know, I come from a science background, being in a lab. How would you have helped me when I was in the lab, you know, with my lab notebooks, with, you know, the data that we were generating? I'm just curious because maybe it's something that people wouldn't normally think about, you know, going to the library to help with their data curation. So many of the labs, especially here on the Longwood campus, whether it's at Harvard Chan, Harvard Medical School, or the School of Dental Medicine, um, as well as at our affiliate hospitals that are there, a lot of them are federally funded through the government. So their data needs to be made publicly accessible. You also want to make sure that your research is reproducible. So sometimes as a scientist, you're extremely focused on your lab experiments, right? And at least getting the data down. But then there's this other chapter of how to make sure that your data is not only openly available, but easily accessible and easy to find. Maybe it needs to be managed and organized differently than you would organize it as the individual who's doing the experiment. There's no right way to organize your data and and make it readily available. There are multiple ways to do that. So not being a research data management librarian, I'm talking from this from a very like overarching umbrella definition. At some point, we may have some RDM librarians who are JCSW members who can tell you a bit more about Pacific. But there are some federal guidelines that NIH and other federally funded institutions are requiring you to do with the data. Um, So we have a lot of research data management librarians who are very highly and skillfully trained on what that means and how to go about it. That's about all I can share on that because it's not my, that's definitely not my forte. So one of the things I also have heard, this was a long time ago, that, you know, for somebody who is going to get a degree in library science, right, really there aren't that many jobs in libraries. You know, has that changed? This was a while ago, but has that changed because of the scope of the work? Um, In the field of like health science librarianship, definitely, there are definitely different 
new types of jobs available in what we, instead of calling it, it was once called, an, and we still do call it medical librarianship, but because we have non-MLSs, sometimes we do have just PhDs in bioinformatics who work for the library, um, who now have PhDs in scientists who may understand the science background better than those of us with library degrees do. So we like to use the term health science librarianship to make sure that it's actually all encompassing. So we can include dental medicine, public health, um, even, even nursing, right? And a pharmacy um, and other aspects of the health sciences. As for the number of jobs, if you're talking about health science librarianship, it ebbs and flows just like sometimes other disciplines. Unfortunately, we're losing a lot of hospital librarians. Our hospitals focus a bit more, and these are my own personal statements, though we have seen this when we look at national data here in the United States. I'm not too sure about other countries outside of the U.S., but our hospitals here in the United States are, for obvious reasons, very focused on the bottom line, and any library in any institution is a non-revenue non producing entity. And it is not cheap to subscribe to the databases and the full text journals to make sure that the staff who need that support and those research tools have them. So when librarians do leave and or retire from hospitals, the spaces are being taken up because it's hot real estate because hospitals just need the space for ambulatory services and, and other reasons. And then unfortunately, they're not they're not rehiring. So hospital libraries have seen a very steep decline in the number of librarians, but I think our academic institutions, I don't want to say that we've seen a large increase. If we have seen a bit of an increase, I would say that it has to do with the leadership of the library imparting on the leadership of their institution, the importance of that library to the institution. I think that's the biggest thing. If you show the value added that your library can have to your students, staff, and faculty, you can be extremely successful. My job was a job that never existed at Countway until I was hired in 2017. And my director created a new position because she felt that it was an important position to have. And she was lucky enough or what's the word that I want to try and say? She was a... She had the foresight? Yeah, she did. And then she was able to really share that information and really explain to leadership why it would be important for them to, you know, basically add more money to the library's budget for another personnel. So if I was like, so I'm in back in my research lab, right? And I want to do a literature search on COVID, right? right. I'm going to do right, a big re review. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say big ass review, but <laughs> um, a big review on COVID. Yeah. Right. Something about it. Long COVID. And I was like, okay, I can go to PubMed put in long COVID and I'll get, I don't know, a hundred thousand hits. Right. So now I can go and click on each one of them. You know, I mean, you can filter through whatever, whatever, however I want to do it. You right? can spend a really long time doing that. Right. I can do that. But then if I came to the library, how would you help me to do that? Well, a library would probably ask you a few other probing questions to find out what more about long COVID you were interested in. So is it, whatever it be, is it a particular population of individuals? So is it race? Is it age? Is it ethnicity? And then what about long COVID? Are you looking for long COVID and other comorbidities? Or are you just looking at long COVID over a period of time? I mean, long COVID hasn't been around as long as some other health conditions. So your date limitations, you wouldn't have to really worry too much about when the articles were published, right? Because long COVID really is kind of the, the newer topic. But we would also ask you about what date range. Do you want to do the last 10 years? Do you want to do a retrospective and go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years and compare 50 years ago to today? With long COVID, we can't do that. But COVID has been around for a bit now. And long COVID is, you know, long COVID symptoms are, are occurring more so now. We would also work with you to create a more specific search strategy rather than just searching long COVID. Long COVID is one of um, many terms that you can use. Long turban may be the colloquial term to use, but there may be a more formal, you know, medical term that the literature is using. So we would kind of help you to 
reel in the the who, what, why, and how of your search. So then you may not get hundreds of thousands of hits and you may only get 2,500 hits, which to be honest, I would rather sift through 2,500 than over 100,000. Or it could be even smaller. Sometimes there are topics that are very niche topics or that are not actually heavily published on. You just hear about it. So our goal is to really help you build a a better search strategy and have what what I've learned in the terminology to be high relevancy and low retrieval. So you want the most relevant articles in the least number of articles rather than the flip side. Okay, so so you've got a library, right? Mm-hmm. Most people think it's a place where you just go and get a book out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Used to be. And yeah. And you know, I mean even you know, a while ago, I was thinking about, oh, I need to read more and, oh, I'll buy the books on Amazon. But then I was like, why don't I just get them out of the library? 100%, 100%. Yeah, I can't wait. So we have all the academic needs for you, for those of you who are in the lab, for those of you like you and my and myself who are in administrative positions. We've got all that, the journals for the students, for the faculty, for the curriculum. But those who are listening will primarily be you know, affiliated with Harvard, whether it's the Longwood campus or any of the other campuses across the river in Cambridge, there are, and I apologize for not knowing the exact number, but there are a number of Harvard libraries that you have access to their collections as well. So some of the undergraduate libraries will have the extracurricular reading that you want. There's a, you know, a newly published biography or autobiography about somebody that you really wanted to read, right? Whomever that happens to be. Or there's a piece of fiction, you know, that was recommended by a friend or a piece of nonfiction recommended by somebody, a colleague, a coworker. Using the online catalog, which we call Hollis, not necessarily the easiest tool to use for those of you who are listening and and have used it and get frustrated. We even as librarians get frustrated with Hollis itself, but it's what we have to work with. But you can look up those books and have any book whether we have it at Countway at any of the other Harvard libraries or we don't have it at all, you can actually request any item of no cost to you. And that library will, that item, wherever it may come from, will then come to you wherever you want it to come to. So if you are now working a hybrid or you're working primarily from home and you don't live, you're not coming to Longwood campus, but you live in Somerville or Cambridge or Medford and you live, you know, closer to the, the Harvard Yard area, you can have your items delivered to the closest Harvard library there is to you for you to come and pick up. So it's not only for your work slash school needs. It really can be used for your own for your own personal family needs as well, whether you have spouses, partners, children, other family members. And some of the libraries are music libraries. So if you're a musician and you're looking to find some new sheet music to play, the music library can help you with that. Uh, the Schlesinger Library has an extremely large collection of cookbooks. So if you're looking to try out new recipes, you can you can do that. So you don't have to use Amazon. Amazon comes directly to your front door. So it does make it even more convenient than, you know, going to a Harvard Library. But I think, like you said, you should check out to see what the Harvard Libraries have. But as I said, it doesn't have to be at a Harvard Library. You can use what we call interlibrary loan and this library staff will then find a library that has the item that you're looking for, send it to us and allow you to check it out for a number of weeks, sometimes a number of months. And the thing that is that at the Harvard libraries and the public libraries, correct, it's free. You, you don't have to pay. No. And in Massachusetts, even if you may live in you know, JP or Boston, and you have a Boston public library, there's a lot of reciprocity. There's a, so that you can use the public libraries throughout the entire state of Massachusetts and beyond. So your public libraries can also do interlibrary loan as well, though I'm less familiar with whether or not if it doesn't come within the, I think it's the Minutemen something or other, like the entire state of Massachusetts, if they can't find it in the state, I'm not too sure if public libraries charge you or not. I think it just varies by state to state and and like kind of district to district. But your your public libraries, as well as one of the fringe benefits of being a, a staff student or faculty at Harvard, is the ability to access 
just anything that's circulating, I should say, um, anything that could actually be checked out from any of the Harvard libraries. Yeah. And back in the day, I used to go to the Widener Library. Yeah. I would, you know, and I don't know, there's something about walking up those steps. <laughs> right. So the, really, you know, where the, the tourists are taking the photos. Yeah. And then walking up the steps and going in. Yeah. And then, you know, and there was a few times where they were just, they were just fiction books that I was interested in getting. And I was, you know, I was down deep in the stacks. Yeah. It's still a lovely environment in a library, right? The libraries are really still trying to, and unfortunately COVID has kind of like thrown a wrench in there because a lot less people are coming to campus. So they're not entering the buildings in the field of librarianship for sure. And in our health sciences, we use the term library as place, you know, that we still do have a place in the community in which our buildings sit. We just have to figure out how best to bring users back into the library in the age of what before Amazon was, you know, your Barnes and Noble, right? That was the big online book seller. And back Amazon used to be solely a bookseller when it first when it first launched. And then it became an even larger conglomerate that now you can you could buy everything and anything on Amazon and other online online stores. So we're really trying to work hard to to bring people back to feel that feeling that you mentioned about walking into a building, whether it's up a stairs to this large, grand, much older library like Widener is compared to a library like Countway, which was built in the early 60s, but still give you that feel. But our our collection is down deep now too, right? When you walk into Countway, for those of you who have been in there, you'll walk in um, and you don't really see books. There's a few small collections when you walk into the right from the Shattuck Street entrance, but all of our books are now underground, two levels, but they're still there. And it has a really great paper book smell when you when you enter the doors. Right. There's also something I, you know, I've always been a reader, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just something about you can go into a library anywhere in the world. Well, I can go, let's say I can go into a library, anyone in the world, and you can go in and just sort of start browsing the books. And then you'll find something and then there you are just sitting down looking at the books and it's all, it's it's free. I mean, I think I, that's what the uh, thing that I'm trying to say is right. this is huge resource out there, mm -hmm. you know, is free and for people to take advantage of. Agreed. Public and the academic, if you are, if you're lucky enough to, if you're, you know, or privileged enough to, to be a member of that organization, you know, or microcosm. And you can travel the world and go into other libraries and take a look and browse. But that browsing happens less and less these days, which is another reason why we are trying at Countly to bring more people into our library to be able to see the space and use and learn how to use the space or relearn for those of us who, have, you know, are not from the millennial or, or Gen Z, those of us who are Gen Xers and older, where we really remember, you know, browsing, browsing the stacks, as we call it, you know, we weren't born digital. So there was no other way, you know, to find a book. And we were using card catalogs and, or we were just walking through the poetry section, right? Or the autobiography section and seeing what was on the shelf at that time, you know, because what's on the shelf at that time is just only a snapshot. There are other books that have been checked out. So you can come back literally hours later, days later, weeks later, months later, and then there's going to be a different array of books on the shelves after that. So it's always something new. Right. So you so you mentioned, and you are the manager of outreach and public services. And you mentioned community and getting people into the County Library, especially now as it's been renovated and looks amazing. And so what do you want people to come in for in, you know, and feel part of the community? So with the new renovations of the library, um, we opened our doors with our first renovation in January of 2021 and our most recent renovation kind of 
we launched it in September of this year of 2023. Um, it's a collaborative space. So we want people to, especially those people who are working primarily from home to really think about coming back to campus, even if it's once a month, you know, and instead of sitting maybe in some of those really dry touchdown areas that are important to have. So I'm not poo-pooing the touchdown areas that our schools are really trying to build to bring people back. But we have open table seating for folks to come in and work on their computers, but work in just a different environment. You know, working from home is helpful, but working from home can also be distracting. Even if you're at home by yourself, there's always dishes to be done, laundry to be done, folded, put away, animals pestering you in the middle of the day because they're like, let's go, you know, for a walk. And, you know, you're like, I have work to do. So we want you to come in. We also want you to maybe come in and, and have meetings. Um, we have study spaces, you know, and there are meeting rooms up on the fifth floor that you can schedule for meetings, whether they're small meetings, departmental meetings, or if it's just you and a colleague and you decided that you wanted to meet at the library, all of our first floor and most of our open areas on lower level one are collaborative. So they're not quiet spaces. So you and a colleague can come and sit at a table you know, on the first floor or lower level one and just kind of work together. You know, you can have your emails and send your emails and do whatever administrative work you have to do, but you can also talk to each other without having to worry about interrupting or disrupting the people around you. If there was a meeting that you wanted to have and rather have than having it on Zoom, you both agree that you would love to meet in person. Obviously cafes are great, but sometimes again, noisy and distracting. We have a number of different size, what we call study rooms, but can be used for small, small meeting rooms. We also have a lot of other non-academic related programming at our library. Uh, our goal is to really treat the person holistically. We're all either student, staff, or faculty that are using the library for their like academic purpose, but we're more than just the academic part of who we are, right? We all have stress in our lives, whatever those stressors may be. And we all need ways to manage that stress and we need ways to what we would call a decompress and disconnect. You know, we're on our phones, we're on our tablets, we're on our laptops sitting in front of Zoom. So we have pet therapy, we have concerts that happen, I guess, on a monthly basis for 45 minutes where you can come to campus and listen to, usually it's a student or a staff member of one of our three schools who are trained musicians as well who come in and donate their time to play music. We have documentary screenings that we feel would on topics that we feel that the overall user base of our campus would be interested in. So like we had mentioned earlier, you know, we want our library to be like the community center for the campus because we do support all three of the schools. My email may say hms.harvard.edu um, and that's just from a like a budget financial perspective, but our library serves all three of the schools as equally as we can. So our dedication really is to the entire campus as well as our affiliate hospitals. So what was your background before you came physician? Did you have the that kind of experience before? Sort of. It was a long and winding road for me to actually get to where I got. I was definitely late in getting a master's degree, if you think of it from the traditional perspective. I was 35 when I got my master's degree, and I have a lot of colleagues of mine who have been in the field of library science longer, where we being the same age, but they've been in the field, you know, 10 plus years more than me. Initially, when I started my undergraduate career, I thought I would be a social worker. And while I was an undergraduate while I was in undergraduate school, um, I got a student job at the library. And that was at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And I worked there for a bit. And then I realized, well, if I really want to be a social worker, I should probably go out into the mental health field. So I left my student library job and became a mental health technician. And over a couple of years, worked at a couple of different psychiatric institutions, public and private. Really loved the work that I did, but I was not emotionally mature enough and realized I, if I do this now, I will burn out way too fast. And I actually really missed working in the library environment. I really wanted to go back. 
So I kind of, that's kind of how I figured out that the library world was really where I wanted to be. So I was still helping people, right? I was just helping people differently. And then there was just lots of twists and turns in my life. And it was much later, about 14 years later, when I then didn't finish my undergraduate degree, I'd stopped going, I'd moved cross country, you know, trying to find myself in the 90s, I guess. <laughs> and then uh, I, I knew that I wanted to be, I, I knew that library science was it. I needed to get, I wanted to get my MLS, the master's in library science, but I hadn't finished my bachelor's degree. So I went back to school. I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. So I finished my undergraduate degree in about a year's time at Portland State University, applied and started graduate school in 2003 and graduated in 2006. But while I was doing that, I got a job, at my first medical library job, I should say. Um, I started in 1998 at a very small community hospital about 25 miles west of Portland, Oregon. And that's when I knew that this health science librarianship was the librarianship that I wanted to do. It wasn't public. It wasn't the four-year or community college. But I had never known that hospital libraries or medical libraries or what we call health science libraries now, I didn't know that they existed. It wasn't until I saw this job in the classified ads when there were, you know, print classified ads or I don't even know how I found this job. Um, and I was there eight years and that allowed me to finish my undergrad degree and also go to graduate school. Being a, a pretty big extrovert with some introverted tendencies, my interpersonal skills and my relationship building, it was just kind of, it's automatic. It's just how I live my life. You know, I can build a relationship with a stranger on, in line at the grocery store. So I knew that that needed to be a part of whatever it was that I did in the field of library science. Um, and I knew that I didn't fit the traditional mold that we remember librarians to be older women, you know, bun wearing, glasses wearing, older women telling you to, you know, be quiet in the library. And I tend to be the one to be told to keep my volume down. Not anymore, because <laughs> libraries are, are not that anymore. But it was a long and winding road for me to get there. And ever since then, every library job that I've had, even if I did the traditional like research and instruction work, there was always some sort of outreach component to it. And now here I am managing a department where that really is the primary role of what I do. Okay. And where do you get your ideas from for, for outreach? Some come from, you know, myself or directives from the library leadership, but I learned very early on that I don't ever want to be the 800 pound gorilla in the room and tell anybody what they should and shouldn't do or what they want or what they need. So I spend a lot of time getting to know the users however I can and finding out what they would like to see. So always asking people at any events, one, how'd you find out about us? Two, what other programming ideas? Uh, lots of collaboration with student run organizations at our schools. I work very closely with all of the student affairs offices at the three schools here on the Longwood campus. So lots of collaboration and co-sponsorship with all sorts of entities on campus to be able to then help them provide these kind of extracurricular activities or supplemental activities that they may not have the full capacity to do because of the nature of their jobs. So we work very collaboratively. Okay, and I know that you got a shout out at the most recent State of the School address by the Dean. I did. So, <laughs> yeah, which was amazing because I could go, oh, I, well, I know about this. <laughs> I was a little, it was very weird. I can't remember if, uh, yeah, I was there. I was late to the State of the School, so I missed a lot of it. So I wasn't too sure if I had missed it, but it had happened towards the end of the State of the School and the, I knew he was going to give me a shout out because his speechwriter had had poked me about it, but I had no idea exactly what he was going to say or when he was going to say it or where in his speech. And yeah, it was kind of it was kind of overwhelming because then I kept getting uh, I would get a number of either pings through Microsoft Teams and emails and text messages or when I would see people on campus, they were like, oh, my God, I can't I heard you. I heard the dean, you know, mention your name and very humbling. You know, I, I love the work that I do, but it's always great to be acknowledged by whomever it is. And then to be acknowledged by Dean Daly was definitely, you know, was definitely pretty, pretty great. 
I need to, I should find that recording and I kind of need to save it. It's almost like something I need to, I need to isolate that part so I can, I don't know, if I ever look for a new job, I need to isolate that section of his speech and put it in my digital CV or something, right? I mean, I could, I, I could write it down because I think it was also because of the social justice and advocacy award that I had won through the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Partnership. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty overwhelming, but exciting at the same time. Yeah, I mean, clearly what you've been doing and are doing has made an impact at the highest level. Like somebody noticed. Right, right. I, I hope so. I mean, I think that's what my director had had hoped for when she created this position and hired me. And it's definitely been a long road. You know, it none of this came easy. None of it came, none of it was simple. You know, I had to sit down and I've met with a lot of upper level leadership. I've sat down with the former Dean for Medical Education at Hundert. Now we have Dr. Bernard Chang, who I have been lucky enough to work really closely with as his previous position as, you know, advisory dean for the Peabody Society at the medical school. And I am the Peabody Society medical librarian. So I've worked with him very closely. And now he's the dean of medical education. Within my first couple of months, I also sat down with, uh, you know, like Dean Fidencio Saldana, who's the dean for students at the medical school. I've sat down with the directors of student affairs. Like I've made sure that I was, you know, in the, and this was pre-COVID. So people were on campus all the time and lots of meetings in person and not on Zoom. But I spend a lot of time really making sure that I get to know them, but they also not only get to know me, but get to know why I exist in the, on the campus, right? That I'm a part of Countway and that I myself am a part of Countway, but there's this larger Countway library to be aware of. So I kind of educate people about all of the different facets of Countway Library, even if I am not directly involved in all of those facets of the library, I work with them in some capacity and can then share and impart that knowledge out to our other users to then bring them back to use our services. So, you know, it's been, it's been pretty gay, but it's, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talking, you know, a lot of relationship building, right? Sometimes it doesn't go well the first time. So, but I'll try another way. Yeah, you're persistent. I try to be sometimes, yeah, I guess persistent. Sometimes, I don't know, sometimes persistent can put a negative spin on persistence. So I'm not really too sure what the right like adjective would be, but yes, but I'm not persistent to the point of annoyance. At least I hope I'm not. Right. But it's, I was actually listening to this podcast. It's called Good Bad Billionaires. It's by the BBC. Okay. You know, they'll have a particular billionaire. And they'll sort of say, how did they get to their first million? How did they get to their first billion? And then they'll have like some kind of judging, you know, are they, what about their philanthropy, their influence, their power, you know, all of that kind of thing. And one of the things that I was sort of thinking about over having listened to a few of them over the past few days that, you know, it is about them being persistent. You know, and also one of the things was like, if they failed, they sort of got back up again and tried something else. Right. So I think being persistent is really important. Yeah, it's just how you go. It's how you go about it, right? You know, you don't yeah. want to be persistent and be derogatory or inflammatory, you know, or I'm right, you're wrong. You know, you want to be persistent and be like, okay, maybe this wasn't the right time. Maybe it wasn't the right discussion topic maybe it wasn't the right plan of attack you know and then you do go back and you reassess right it's kind of like your own every time it's kind of a needs assessment but on a little bit more of an individual level or a much larger level from a billionaire's perspective when they're looking for investors right maybe they weren't the right investor or not at the right time so yeah you just kind of have to if it's a no it's a no only at that moment in time and then you go back you reassess what did you do? What could you have done differently? How could you have approached it differently? How could how could you have sold it differently? And then, you know, reschedule yet another meeting in some way, shape, or form, or invite them to something that may be more impactful, right? Finding out, all right, well, what I did wasn't impactful enough for them to say yes to whatever it was your ask was. So how can I make it more impactful? Or how can I show them 
that it's more impactful. Right. It's it's sort of also because I'm just I'm thinking it from the point of view that this was a new position mm -hmm. and you're building this community. So right at the start, you have to be proving that it it is important. Correct. Because it's a whole new thing. Right. And you like going, no, actually, this is a really good idea. Right. I mean, the thing was, is that the library wasn't a new thing, but even there's many people who work at any institution or organization that may have a library, even in your public library, people are probably really unaware of the, the myriad services and resources available to them through their library. So my job was to make sure to go out there to talk about the work that people are doing and then to find out how I can connect them to either services that they're already using and remind them about them or educate them on new resources and services that would be extremely beneficial to either them or to the people that work for them or with them. It's kind of like you don't know what you don't know. So my job is to kind of share with you, whomever you happen to be, what you don't know about the library. And I've met faculty and other staff who have been at Harvard for years who had no idea that our research and instruction librarians can help with literature searching. You know, some people know that that's definitely not a skill set of theirs. And it's time consuming. And they were like, wow, this would save me so much time and energy for a librarian to help me with this than for me to try and attempt it by myself. And that that's the goal, whether it's literature searching, managing data from your experiments, imparting new instruction, learning new resources, or coming to, you know, stress and give a hug to a lovely floofy dog who's just looking for love. Yeah, I especially love that you have now a guinea pig. Yes, we have two guinea pigs. They're owned by the same handler. So we do, we have two. And I was so surprised at the response. There are a lot of people who currently have guinea pigs of their own or grew up with guinea pigs as pets rather than dogs or cats or birds or anything else. And so bringing Hermie and Calvin, those were their names, to Calvin Cuddles program has really expanded who comes to see the guinea pigs, but also then who then begins and starts to come to the, you know, the, the, the dogs. Uh, we had people coming saying, oh my God, I've had guinea pigs since I was a small kid. And it just starts this great conversation with the, with Nikki, who's the owner and handler of the two guinea pigs, this great, really great, rich discussion about taking care of guinea pigs and how much they love them. And the first day that we brought in a guinea pig, we had, she was running a little late due to traffic, but there were 20 people sitting in our Countway Cuddles area waiting to see Hermie the guinea pig. 20 people waiting very patiently for Hermie and uh, his, his owner, Nikki, to arrive. And I was pleasantly surprised. It wasn't, uh, by no means was it a disappointment. I knew that people would be interested because there are many people who have never been around guinea pigs, let alone a, a certified therapy guinea pig. But I even told my director, I was like, I, I couldn't make this up if I tried. And uh, so now they come twice a month. I don't know exactly what's entailed through certifying a guinea pig, but it has to be a very well socialized guinea pig. And, and ours are, they allow you to pet them. They, she comes with these little soft bristles. They're almost like baby brushes. You can brush the guinea pigs and she comes with food that you can then feed the guinea pig with. So you're not watching her feed a guinea pig. You can actually hold the guinea pig in its little cuddle bug bed thing, right? Guinea pigs, they need to feel safe as they're... The prey animals. Yeah, they are prey animals. So they like to, right, so they like to hide and, right. But then she brings wheatgrass and pea pellets and great tomatoes and all sorts of stuff. And people are just like squealing as they're feeding these guinea pigs, which just changes their whole aura, their whole presence from when they walked into a library and they may have come in specifically for this or they may not have had any idea. Uh, we had a, a PhD student at Harvard Chan who came and she had never seen a guinea pig up close. And the smile that she had was 
ear to ear. So excited. It was this new thing. And here's this young woman. She was just so excited to be a part of it. So it really, I watch emotions change relatively flat affect because we do work in a stressful environment to smiles from ear to ear where I know endorphins are now pumping and they'll have a different take on the rest of their day after seeing the guinea pig or possibly one of our dogs. Probably it is our most popular program is our Countway Cuddles, our pet therapy program is our most popular program. And so then, I mean, that's your social work beginnings. In a way it is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's me and I attend as many of them as possible. And my goal is really just to kind of let them interact and listen. And then I kind of ask probing questions, but innocuous probing questions. You know, sometimes what school are you affiliated with? Always curious to find out. Sometimes they're not affiliated with the school. They're, you know, they're postdocs at some of our affiliate hospitals. When I find that out, you know, then I I ask them what program, you know, just to try and find out or how'd you find out about us and whether it's through our calendar of events or it's through a colleague, staff, friend of theirs that told them about it, who was there previously. And that's kind of how I build those. And that's the start. Like you said, it's the start of building that relationship. So then I can then continue to ask more questions about other services that they would like to see the library. Okay, so we're getting kind of close to the end of our conversation. And so I always ask two questions. And there is a third that I have been asking as well. So, you know, the two questions are, what personal skills are you working on and or would like to work on? And what professional skills are you working on or would like to work on? So professionally, this manager, that title that I have is a relatively new official title. So I recently, this summer, spent and took a week-long Leadership Institute for Academic Librarians. So it was specifically for librarians, but not just for those of us in the health science field. So it was people in academic institutions. It was a very labor-intensive, week-long, six-day institute held in person at Harvard Graduate School of Education. So my professional skills are really trying to beef up not only my managerial skills, but my leadership skills to make sure that I can, whether it's here at Countway or at whatever institution and or library that I may be at, is to really not only help lead myself, but my department, you know, my employees, as well as the library as a whole, you know, into into the future to make sure that we don't become irrelevant. But I also want to make sure that I I'm always good at I always wanted to not necessarily be a library director, but I always wanted to just kind of help mentor early career librarians to help them figure out what it is that they want to be in their library adventure, right? And kind of be there to help shepherd them however I can. Obviously, my perspective is not the only perspective, but so I'm really trying to focus on managerial stuff because I do have a department to manage, right? So there's budgeting and conflict resolution and all that comes with managing a a team. But then there's the larger leadership endeavors for me to start thinking more critically about things and big picture. I'm not the biggest picture thinker. You know, I can think a few years out, but I'm not too sure that I'm good at like 10 plus years, you know, like the quote unquote future. But Every little bit counts. So leadership is really kind of my primary focus right now. Personally, I've been on kind of a health journey, making sure to keep my health in check. I'm not getting any younger. It's not getting any easier. So paying closer attention to that. Okay, great. And so my third question is, what do you wish you could do? And it could be anything in the world. Anything. There's a couple of things. If I was independently wealthy, I would love to be a philanthropist in some way, shape, or form to a, for a number of different things. Or I'd love to own a farm where I can find those animals who have not been treated well, take them in, give them the love and care that they need, but then also connect with the community. You know, they're definitely farms and their animals 
where people who go to therapy kind of come and do therapy with by taking care of the horses or the chickens or the pigs or the goats. So I would love to just own a farm. I don't necessarily want to be the sole farm worker. <laughs> I would need to need a staff. But uh, those are kind of the two I would love to do some philanthropic work, you know, in the community in which I live and do the same thing, but from the from the farm animal perspective, that would those are kind of the two things that have just always I'm sure there are others if I sat and thought longer, but those are the those are the two that rise to the top. Okay, great. Yeah. There's a farm up in, but well, it isn't a farm. It's a sanctuary up in Maine. I don't know if it's still around, but the, it was owned by this guy who was a Vietnam vet, but he would take in exotic animals. Mm. So he had hyenas, camels, tigers, Bengal tigers. You know, people would get as like cute little lion cubs and then not so not so small and not so easy to take care of anymore right yeah sanctuary is the right word that was the word that I couldn't think of but yeah that's really my sister and I talk about it every time there's a big lottery and what would we you know we always we always sit down with my 14 year old niece and we're like okay it's not going to happen but let's just play the what if what are the things that we want to do you know and there's personal things that we always want to do help our families you know buy houses and whatnot and pay for college for, you know, cousins and sisters and brothers and whatnot. But then there's always the, the what's next. And so the sanctuary is always rises to the top. I'd love to see if that sanctuary still exists. Cause I know there are a lot of sanctuaries who sometimes allow people to come and do some volunteer work or spend a weekend and work at the sanctuary for a little bit. And I know that there are a lot over, you know, not domestically, you know, lots of rhino sanctuaries or elephant sanctuaries and, and others over whether it's in Africa or Asia or wherever it is. And that's kind of like one of the trips that I would, I would love to take is to go and spend a week at one of those sanctuaries. How often are you going to say that you get to like hug a tiger, you know, or an elephant or whomever, it doesn't matter, a rhino. I don't, it really doesn't matter. A hyena, it really doesn't matter. It's just, you know. Yeah. I mean, the hyenas were a little... Well, yeah, there might be a bit more trepidation for me with a hyena, but, you know. They were a little... Um, aggressive? No, I I would say that when I saw them, and he could, like, he could almost roar like a lion, right? Right. And all those animals knew him. Right. So wherever they were, they then came to, you know, the edge of their enclosure to see him. Yeah. Right. And I think this this guy, you know, his for him make uh starting the sanctuary or working and building it was part of his, you know, recovery from being in Vietnam. The Absolutely. Hundred percent. It really does improve people's mental health. There are lots of people who are so very afraid of very many animals, even domesticated dogs with our Countway Cuddles program. We have a number of people who come into our library who are very, very they're scared of coming close to even our therapy dogs. And these are dogs that won't ever jump up on you. They don't bark. They just want to be loved. But I've definitely seen growth in some of the students who continue to come and to view from the outside. And then over time, they're in there petting the dog. And that just makes me happy that we've, you know, we've actually changed somebody's life, however we've changed it. And I will never know to the degree of which we've changed their lives, but we've changed their lives in some way where they're less scared of this animal. And I don't know what then that does to them externally, but I hope it, it really does, you know, help change them for the better, right? Because the world is just a scary place out there. And our job is to really just try and make it better, you know, make it easier. We, we're in this together. Nobody's working in a vacuum and nobody's working, you know, by themselves. So. Our goal, not only my department, but the library as a whole is really, we're all one big family to some degree, right? Varying degrees of separation, but we're here to help. This is the ultimate, however we help. So if you're just not too sure of how we can help, all you need to do is reach out and ask. And if we can't help you as information professionals, our goal is then to find somebody who can. Okay, great. Thank you, Meredith, for doing this. Thank you, Hardeep. 
for twisting my arm very, very gently. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. Like I have been saying that I can't have this podcast or we can't have this podcast without people being guests because nobody wants to hear from me for an hour at a time or, or anything like that. And that's not the point of the podcast anyway. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and sharing all of your your background and your work and what you also are wanting to do for the Harvard Longwood community as well. Yes, so anybody, please feel free to reach out to me. You can do a Google search for me and there aren't many Meredith Solomons out there, if that's the easiest way to do it. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you.